Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, it's, uh, it's great to have Blowfish Hangovers back as a sponsor. And now is the timing is perfect, because Blowfish is your guarantee that the holiday party season doesn't turn into the hangover season. So after a night of, let's say, you know, holiday cheer or New Year's Eve going crazy, just drop two Blowfish tablets in water, drink it down, and in no time your hangover's gone. And Blowfish is real medicine. And it's recognized by the FDA as an effective and comes with a money-back guarantee. So there's nothing for you to lose here. So here's what you do. Go get some blowfish for you. You don't need it for the Christmas. You don't need it for New Year's. You can use it then. You can use it all year round. So get it for yourself as a stocking stuffer or a person who drinks everything. And when you go to their website, hangovers.com, that's hang- fourhangovers.com, use the promo code COOPER and you get 20% off. So go to fourhangovers.com and use the code there. Anyway. We have a uh, we have a great show today. We have a, a gentleman who I, I guess you could say is one of, is one of the founding fathers of the uh, the Philadelphia comedy scene that that boomed back in the day, and uh, and it's Clay Erie. How you doing, Clay? I'm doing well, Steve. Uh, is this Blowfish? Is that a real sponsor, or is that just something you made up? No, it's a real it's a real sponsor. I'm not lying. It's, really, you can actually go online and order some Blowfish. Yeah, for it's 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 a Blowfish medicine for hangovers. I, I got to ask you something, Clay. I know you're a big hockey fan. I know you've loved hockey for a long time, and, and the Flyers look great. But why do you hate the Eagles so much? Oh, I do not hate the Eagles. I hate that they haven't done crap in uh, 50 years. I hate the fact that they hired Chip Kelly because I was against him from day one. And, boy, was I proven right. The, uh... Eagles fans should make a statue for me because I was the one who saw that train wreck coming. And uh, and letting Deshaun Jackson go for free to a, a, a team in the division. And he, he single-handedly has cost the Eagles the playoffs a couple times. Uh, unbelievable. And I, I'm just so proud of the success that Chip Kelly's having in San Francisco right now. So uh, eventually, uh, pretty much, I think he's figured out. Everybody's figured him out by now. Yeah, he's. It's just so funny. He's. Everyone knew what his plays he was calling, but I know because I always see your posts on Facebook, and it was. Uh, I always. Just, I thought you didn't like the Eagles. That's what I thought it was. I, I know because I know as I said. Now, what do you think of the Flyers? How are you, are you excited about them, Steve? You know, we've known each other for a long, long time, and you have to admit you're not the most perceptive guy. No, well, you so, know. Uh, your comprehension has always been sort of lacking, and so I can understand why you would get come to that conclusion. Now, is this coming through okay on the Skype? Because this is my first time doing it. I just don't know uh, exactly. Am I am I coming across okay? Is this a uh, good quality and that sort of stuff? Yeah, you sound great. Okay, because uh, you know, because I have this picture of you on my screen, and I don't know how to get it off. Oh well, I sh- my picture shouldn't be up there. If, I think if you go, you can. Well, is it is it a still picture, or am I actually looking at it's, you? It's a still picture that is looking at. Then you so can't because kind of creepy, and I want to get it out of here. I have I have your still picture too, the one you're looking to the side. Believe me, I can't look directly at you. It's some sort of like a vampire thing. Exactly. So which episode is this going to be of Cooper Talk? This is going to be 581, Clay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and we... Well, 581. How many are left? Uh, you know what? I don't know. Maybe maybe, oh. maybe 20, maybe 40. I don't know. Can we move me, my, this one back a bit? Because I would love to be episode... 
episode 666. Well, yeah, we could do that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, so what, what, what's your take on the Flyers? I think they're just coming, you know, I know Ron Hextall, and uh, I've always, uh, you know, you got to admit, he was the most incredible goalie that the uh, Flyers have ever had. I mean, I, I understand Bernie Perron, who was an excellent goalie, but... Hextall still has the scoring championship trophy, and uh, he also started the most fights. So you gotta admit the guy's got spunk. And uh, when you have somebody like that who gets more people who play like he did, uh, you're gonna have a winning team. Now I want to get to the comedy portion about your comedy and how. Now I want to get to because you know you you know you. Were in the four. You were in the beginning of the comedy scene. When did you know you wanted to do stand up? As a kid, were you an athlete, or did you want to play? Place. I mean, did you want to do actor? I know. How did your whole comedy thing start? Actually, you know, I think it started. I was watching the Ed Sullivan show, and Jackie Vernon uh, came on, and uh, Jackie Vernon did a lot of great one liners. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit down. My uncle Sid Sackowitz died to cherry pie at the automat. And the little door snapped shut on his neck. And my father started laughing and laughing. Uh, for those of you who don't, don't remember what the automats were like, these were essentially vending machines. There were the, uh, the door popped up when you put your coins in the slot. And you could take a piece of cherry pie or a ham sandwich or whatever you want. And uh, it was just a funny, funny visual. And I have never forgotten that joke. And I said, wow, that is a, that's a great way to make a living. So how do you, you're young, there's not a lot of comedy like now, there's clubs everywhere. How do you start to go into that path that you can sit there and eventually do that as a living? Well, you know, that was a, a tough haul. Uh, there was nothing happening in Philadelphia. Uh, we had to create it. Uh, Grover Silcox and I used to take the bus from Mount Laurel, New Jersey, up to uh, New York to go to the improv. And, uh, you know, we can doing it on the uh, doing it on the weekends was just forget about it because uh, we would never get stage time. And, of course, they would always put us on at the end, like at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. if they if they still had a crowd. And... Uh, and we would say, oh, geez, we got to go to work the next day. Well, we can sleep on the bus. And we would almost always uh, uh, miss the uh, 4 o'clock bus and have to take the 5.30 bus. And we would never sleep on the way back. And then go to work the next day uh, looking like hell. So uh, that's pretty much how you had to do it in those days. What were you doing uh, as a job then? Well, we were both working in advertising. And uh, it was, uh, you know... In those days, advertising was pretty much the scam it is today. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, as long as you could uh, fake it and uh, come up with some snappy things to say, people would hire you. So that's exactly what we were doing. So you're doing that. You're trying to get stage time in New York. It's not working out because the bus is a pain in the ass. And you, don't, you know, you're always tired going to work. When do you decide to sit there and say, we need to do this in our backyard? You know, it was, uh, it was fairly easy uh, because... We were uh, we would just take stage time wherever we could. We would uh, essentially started off in a lot of the strip clubs, and uh, because sometimes.
sometimes when there weren't enough guys in the audience, the dancers didn't want to go on and, uh, you know, why bother when they could just, uh, make more money hustling drinks, uh, from the few guys that were there. So we would go up on stage and, uh, the dancers were actually very happy that we would uh, take some pressure away from them and do some stage time uh, because it was easier for them. Uh, and then the, we did other things. I remember during the big uh, gas crisis in the 70s, we uh, we literally worked a gas station. So they had long lines of uh, people waiting to get gas, and uh, we did comedy for the people in the lines. Uh gas station actually hired us to do that. See, that's pretty cool. Now, now, who was it? Just you and Grover, or did you have a few other guys, or who were the, 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 the early, early days? Just me and Grover in the beginning, and then uh, as the, uh, as the uh, scene started to open up, we encountered more like-minded folks, like Andy Cowan and Ben Curland and Ken Lynch, and, uh, and we mostly met them those at uh, Grandma Minnie's, which was a place that would, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they would only have an open mic on Wednesday nights, and they were getting between 40, 60 acts on a Wednesday night. Uh, then it was just impossible for us to uh, keep uh, going there because it was just a madhouse because the only people there were the performers and uh, there was a lot of cabaret singers and things like that, and it just wasn't a great venue. And uh, I believe, uh, I don't know who it was. It may have been Andy Cowan or maybe Ben Curlin, but somebody said, you know, there's this place at uh, 23rd and Fairmount called London, and they have an upstairs room, and we can use that. London sat 34 people, and we started doing comedy there on Tuesday nights and uh, charging a dollar a piece. And uh, Liz Matt, who Grover and I uh, went to school with, she was known as Liz Starr on AM Philadelphia for a long, long time. She was she was working for uh, Evening Magazine at that point. And uh, she's looking for things to do uh, stories on. So she came and did one for us. And we were said, wow, now we've made it. And uh, But the problem was massive blizzard hit the day after uh, the, the thing aired because it aired on a Monday and we were working on a Tuesday and it, practically, it must have sh come close to shutting down the city but it didn't stop. We did $200 at the door that night. Uh, people coming and going mostly people who could walk there because the, the roads weren't very passable. But uh, we literally had people waiting down, walk, hanging out down the steps, waiting for people to leave so they could come in and sit down and get uh, a few minutes of comedy. So that's when we knew things were going to be happening. So things are happening. That's starting then. And now, did you guys, was your next stop the jailhouse? Was that the yes, next? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. At, at that point, we said, you know, we can't uh, we can't keep playing this place. And it's it's got, you know, it's 34 seats. Uh, the demand is there, but we couldn't get a weekend spot. And I do remember it was Ken Lynch who said, hey, you know, uh, there's this place, uh, the jailhouse, and uh, we can, he, he, he doesn't have anything on the weekends, and we can get Saturday nights. So that's when we opened up there on Saturday nights, and uh, we 
got a uh, cover story in the Philadelphia Inquirer's Weekend Magazine, and things just went nuts. Uh, we were still charging a dollar a head, but we had to expand to uh, two shows on a Saturday night, and uh, more and more people came to perform, and so then we had a uh, rotating group of about 14 regulars. So the shows, when you said you had two shows on a Saturday night, were they were they the same acts and just two different crowds, or did you have no. two different two different shows at different acts? Two, two completely different shows, different acts. Uh, because we had, like I said, we had 14 regulars, so it was seven acts a show. And so people would come in and do the first show one week and then do the second show the next week. No. And it was uh, not a... Not one of your better crowds and a, a horrible room to perform in. There were really only like uh, four seats in the front of the stage. And then there was uh, about uh, 30 or 40 to one end and then about 80 to the other end. Uh, so it was like working in a subway car. And uh, the crowds weren't the best. Uh, you know, they, I don't think it's still there, but the uh, owner was very, very proud of the fact that... Uh, he had stone floors because that way, at the end of the night, he could just hose the vomit into the drains, <laughs> and it was just going to be a. So, and that's exactly what he was doing. Uh, the uh, one night, Ken Lynch was on stage, and uh, there was a little commotion in the audience, and it turns out that there was this drunk rat walking through the audience. And he came, and he stopped in front of the stage, and he looked up at Ken Lynch, and Ken Lynch looked right back down at him, and the rat said, "Yeah, this isn't funny," and he walked away. So uh, that was that gives you an idea of the ambiance that in which we were performing. Now, now, were you being the host back then, or who? Because I know you always hosted at CFO. Who who would host the shows? We decided that we would go hostless. Because that way there are nobody, no egos to be involved in that sort of thing, and nobody's dominating the stage. Everybody would have their time, they would get their light, and we would take a one-minute break between acts, and then he, the next act would be announced from the booth. So you're doing this, and it's it's catching on. People are, yep. are, are catching on. So now where do you decide to go to get better crowds? Because once again, except for New York, you know, comedy clubs weren't really known and there was not really a business module, per se, to do a comedy club. Mm-hmm. The other really wasn't. Well, uh, Jimmy Tyoon, uh, above the Middle East restaurant, had this uh, place which he decided to call the Old City Cabaret. So he took his third floor and converted it into a uh, cabaret theater and it was bombing. It was bombing. He had, he couldn't he couldn't uh, buy an audience there. Uh, you know, he thought he was going to do so well. Uh, apparently, he was very very wrong. And so we said, "Hey, uh, well, we'd like to do this here." And he was, you know, he, he was a businessman, and he just said, "Well, I don't know. I don't. Well, well let's let's try it out over the summer." So uh, we decided to throw all of our eggs in the one basket. He, uh, we actually did what we called the Comedy Spotlight World Tour, uh, which was a, we did a torch run throughout the streets of Philadelphia, uh, 
as one comic would pass the torch to the other and we would go from the jailhouse to uh, the Middle East restaurant and uh, got some TV coverage out of that, got uh, a lot of newspaper coverage, mostly Clark DeLeon's column, because I think he ran every step of the way with, <laughs> with, the, uh, with the runners. Uh, mostly, uh, mostly the comics just did uh, like one block because we weren't in the best of shape. But uh, Ben Curland, who was a runner, he ran most of it, as I recall. Uh, almost, <laughs> almost about 90% of the run he handled himself. Well, you know what's funny with Tyune, you know, starting a business in the summer in the Philadelphia area is not always the smartest thing because so many people go down to the beach. That was exactly why he had no, he was, it was easy for him to take the shot because he wasn't doing any business in the winter either. So uh, he knew he wasn't going to, he was going to be dark all summer. So why not take a shot with comedy? So he takes a shot, you do the run, the passing of the torch and how's it accepted? Wonderful. Turns out we had the busiest bar in Philadelphia that summer. Uh, it was something that people were waiting for in a decent venue in a decent part of town uh, where you could actually go to the area, have a nice dinner, not necessarily at the Middle East, but you could have a nice dinner in the neighborhood. And uh, you knew it was a fairly safe area. And uh, it was a nice, clean uh wonderful uh, kind of place we were uh, doing uh, three nights of shows we were doing uh, a Thursday night which was the open mic Fridays and Saturdays uh, two shows apiece and uh, it was a it was kind of a weird room to work because it had a very very high ceiling but uh, we filled that in with uh, slides uh, projected up onto the ceiling and to the walls and sort of tried to make it more intimate, which we did. And it turned out very, very well to the point where uh, he, he made his own deal. What, so, uh, what was the name of it? The end of the Comedy Factory Outlet at uh, the Middle East Restaurant. Oh, so it was, the original name was the Comedy Factory Outlet? That's correct. Now, how did you come up with that name? Uh, we were talking about it, and of course the Comedy Store was big in uh, L.A., and so uh, we were thinking, well, what can we do that's similar but different enough? And, you know, of course, Pennsylvania is known for its factory outlets. So there was the, uh, there it was, the moment uh, we hit on it. And in all honesty, I think it was me who came up with the idea. Okay. Uh, that, was the, that was the name. So Tyone makes his own deal. Now you have to go look for a new place. We still had the jailhouse uh, because the... Uh, you know, we were only to do a summer thing with Tyune, and uh, some guys said, "No, we want to." You know, we got to cut ties completely. And others said, "Well, you know, it's always good to have a fallback position, and it can be like the minor league place for uh, the big room, which was also a nice idea." So uh, we still had the uh, the jailhouse to go back to, so that got rechristened the Comedy Factory Outlet. And now, when did you gravitate to the uh, the location on Bank Street? Because, you know, that, that was, you know, and I've talked to a lot of comics. That was like the one club that every comic, it's similar to the Ice House out here. You, you're going to do good on that stage. 
when did you decide to go to that location? And did you specifically look for lower ceilings and a theater-like aspect because the Middle East that became the comedy works was so spread out? Or did this just, was that just set up like that when you went there? No, no, uh, it was not set up that way. Uh, it had been a, uh, it was the second floor nightclub uh, called Spats. And uh, where the uh, stage was, was actually a, uh, a giant bar, which was about half of the room. And uh, it was, uh, essentially, we had to gut the room because it was all mirrored and mirror balls and everything else. And uh, just renovate it. So it was, uh, you know, for, for in all intents and purposes, it was uh, sort of built from the ground up to be a comedy club or re re-engineered re or re jimmied to become a comedy club. When you were re-engineering it, per se, if that's the word we want to use, did you sit there and did you and the other comics talk about what you thought would be more conducive to comedy? Because, as you said, the jailhouse was just too spread out and the comedy works. I mean, you're right. With the comedy works, if you told jokes, they would float up into the roof. Did you sit there and guys go through the steps going, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to set it up? Yes. It was set up exactly for comedy. It was set up very similar to the improv in New York, where it's a small stage almost in one corner. And in fact, uh, I haven't been to the improv in decades, but uh, I last time I was there, the stage was set up in the same spot as it was in the Comedy Factory outlet to the back of the wall over to the left a little bit and uh, and so we just figured that had the best sight lines so that was uh, important for for the audience so we uh, we went for theater seating unlike uh, most of the nightclubs uh, because you could fit more people in that way and uh, I bought a bunch of uh, seats from a, an abandoned porno theater in uh, Easton Pennsylvania <laughs> And uh, the guy who took them out came down and put them in. And we had a few rows of additional ones for when those broke. But, you know, they made them good back in those days. You know, this was back in the 20s and 30s, and uh, the seats were pretty sturdy. So uh, they weren't the most comfortable, but uh, that was also a plus because after an hour and a half of sitting in them, you were glad to get out. Right. So that, that was good for everybody. So we... Eventually wound up doing uh, three shows on a Saturday night. Now, at what point did you know or did you foresee the comedy boom happening? Like when you started at the Comedy Factory outlet, when you started on the Bank Street, was it still the same kind of lineup, seven guys? Or were, were you by that time into the three-man, four-man setup of a show? We were always going to at least four acts a show. Uh, the three man per show, I didn't, uh, I didn't feel was going to be conducive because it would cause too many comics to to think they can pad their time. And uh, when you give a comic an extra minute or two, he's going to pad, and it's just going to hurt the integrity of the show. So uh, you know, on on TV, you know, they tell you, "Oh, come in with seven minutes," and then they're going to chop you down. Oh, we have to cut your time to three and a half. So you got to edit on the fly, and you can cut out all the ums and ahs and all the stammering and the stuttering and all the filler, and uh, it makes for a better show. Now, at what point of this in this whole Comedy Factory outlet uh, thing did you start working for WMMR? Uh, geez, uh, 
couple of years in, I think, because, uh, yeah, I think we opened in 82 or something like that, and uh, DeBella came to town about 85, and I uh, was listening to him on the air, and uh, I said, this guy's unusual, this guy's got uh, a lot of good stuff, and uh, so I hired him to come in and uh, do the uh, an MC on the Friday night show, and uh, which we were only doing one at the time, and he said to me, you know, I need somebody to come out and uh, do man on the street interviews for me, and you know anybody would do it. I asked all of the comics. I said, is anybody interested in doing this? None of them were interested, and I said, wow. You know, because in all honesty, I offered it to everybody, and I said, well, if they're not going to do it, I will. That's a, you know, this is a great opportunity. So I was the man on the street for WMMR for the yeah, the Bella Travesty. And uh, that turned out pretty good. Uh, in fact, uh, I think you've had some of the Hooters on as guests. Yes. And they actually wrote a theme song for me called Man on the Street, which if I think you can, uh, it's available, I, probably iTunes and Amazon. And uh, that was my theme song. So, so what were your segments like? I mean, were you just going out in the street like, like, like you know, like a Don Pollock type who was the goofy guy in Philly, or were you just going out talking to people? What was, what was your segment, and would you have to get there real early? Because I mean, there was a uh, thing that uh, Debella had called Debella made me do it. So, uh, in turn, in exchange for say concert tickets, he'd have a uh, girl in four degree weather uh, dressed in a bikini with a sign saying DeBella made me do it at the I-95 Callahill Hill exit. And, uh, and it was my job to make sure that she actually did it. So I was out on the street with a tape recorder and what I would do, and this is before uh, cell phones, is I would tape her on a micro cassette recorder and do the report. And I actually got good at editing it uh, out on the street and then I would just uh, go to a payphone and play it down on the through the phone line to the studio, and uh, that worked okay. But the, that particular one, as I recall, in the four degree weather, the tape recorder froze. Uh, but generally, it worked out wonderful. So I was doing all sorts of wacky things. Uh, you know, people uh, camped out on top of a WMMR billboard, and I was that to go there and interview them and stand. <laughs> climb up to the billboard with them and uh you know the top of liberty place and whatever goofy thing people could do uh that's what i was covering now when did you become captain cranky oh that was a sort of a, a situation where Debella didn't have anything happening that week or maybe it was just real real chilly out i forget or he couldn't get something and uh he uh, he said, "Well, come on in the studio and hang out, and uh, you know we'll play radio." That was his term. We we play radio, and uh, I just said, "Well, geez, what am I going to talk about?" And uh, there was this uh, weathercaster on uh, Channel Three who she had the ugliest clothes in the history of television, <laughs> and. I just went into the studio and I started ranting and raving about how ugly her outfits were. Uh, she had this uh, one thing that was uh, was like a uh, 
purple top and a, a dark brown skirt. Two things that, you know, two colors that never go together in nature. And uh, just went on and on about how she's going to get fired soon because Channel 3 was firing everybody uh, left and right anyway. And uh, and so we, we started her countdown calendar until the day she got fired. And uh, that really uh, lit up the whole area. That was the... Uh, that may have been a turning point because people said, "Well, you gotta, you gotta listen to this. This is interesting. There's nobody's talking about this," and uh, it it really did help. I thought the station because uh, all of a sudden there was a massive buzz that you gotta listen to what these guys are talking about, and she just became an everyday bit. So this is all going on, but now the, the CFO is still running. Now, what kind of shows are you booking, and when did you start? going away from local guys and bringing in New York guys because, I mean, you know, if you look at who played at the CFO, it's a who's who and guest stoppage and stuff like that. When did you start saying, okay, we got to venture out of using, you know, Philly acts all the time because was, was there not enough comics back then or how did that whole process start where you started booking acts from other areas? Well, you know, it was generally uh, accepted right from the beginning and even at Tyune's place, we were bringing in New York acts uh, to headline. The first one was Joe Bolster. And uh, then we had Paul Reiser and then Larry Miller and uh, a whole bunch of people, Eddie Murphy, that sort of folks. And uh, that, that, was, uh, that was the premise from the beginning. People coming back more often because they wouldn't be seeing the same exact faces week after week and still have uh, enough time for the local guys. So uh, that was uh, that, that was the plan all along. You gotta keep the shows fresh because people ain't gonna come back to see the same show twice. They want to see something new and different. Now, how many tapes would you get when the club was in its heyday? How many audition tapes would you get sent to you, and how many phone calls? I mean, it might be for a booker now. It must be crazy because people can just send YouTube links, but back then you actually had to take the time to make a tape. Were you constantly getting bombarded by tapes? And were you one of those club owners that there's always the stories that put the uh, tape over the tape and would tape over them? Actually, you know, I, uh, I'm looking at some of the tapes even now. I still have them. Uh, I don't think I've taped them. The day I came across Tim Allen's first audition tape and... Uh, uh, I'm sure he would pay me good money to get that back. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I, I never taped over any of them if they were willing enough. And, and it was not cheap in those days to do videotape. Uh, if they were willing enough to do put the effort in and put the money in, then it was something worth respecting. So, no, I kept them all. I kept them all. I have them, and... Uh, uh, I could see Andrew Dice Clay right over there and uh, quite a few others. Now, so. now, why did you, and one good thing is you, why did you decide to record the comics too, which was always great because that's the one thing about the Comedy Factory outlet, you could get a good audition tape. Did, was that just something, you know, now clubs charge, but you never charge comics for tapes. They could come in and Jake Gilday was usually the sound guy or Dennis Johnson. Um what made you decide to sit there and putting a tape, a system in that could tape, the comics could tape themselves? That was always the, uh, the uh, plan from the beginning, from day one, that the comics 
could not get better unless they had been had chance to see themselves. So uh, it was always in the budget to buy a good quality video camera, which we had. Uh, it, was, it was one of the best uh, available in those days, and uh, we we had a we were always ready to, to tape everybody. Uh, and the idea was, you know, if you brought us your videotape we weren't going to charge you for it and we weren't going to we weren't going to supply the tape either uh the only rule we had was that comics had to bring us a name brand videotape because even though they cost a dollar more than the non-name brand ones they were better quality and they wouldn't screw up the machine uh, we had so many comics who said, oh, you know, I, I got this one at uh, the Acme. Well, well no, it's got to be a name brand or else we're not going to take a chance of ruining our system. So that was the only uh, criteria we had. Now, now, let me ask you a question. How is this interesting to the Cooper Talk audience across America? Because they love you know, this, this stuff. Is just, this is just all inside baseball. Why? why? People love this, man. You should have heard when Grover was on. People went crazy over Grover's episode. People love this. I'm telling you, Clay, people love this. And you know what? Hey, I, I like talking about it. And so that's, you know, that's about what it comes down to. Yeah, but you have no life. I so know. But... That's probably why. Why well, I want to hear more. Know, I, can't, I can't see, you know, you're, aren't, where, where are your listeners coming from? Are they coming from Milwaukee? Are they from Tampa? Are they, um, they don't need to know about the... Uh, Philly comedy scene. They love that stuff. You know, you'd be surprised. People love stories. I am surprised. Clay, people love stories. And and you know what? And people will love your stories because we still haven't gotten to who were some of the great guest sets that's popped into the Comedy Factory outlet and did anyone ever surprise you that just showed up? Oh, you know, the uh, the biggest surprise of all had to be Robin Williams. Uh he came because he heard this was the comedy place in Philly. And uh, he was the nicest man in the history of the world, as everybody will tell you. He made sure I had his home phone number, uh, even though I never called because, one, I had nothing to say to him. And two, he wasn't going to be home anyway. <laughs> I, I don't think this is, a, this is a, probably a guy who who probably never spent more than 20 nights in a row in his home ever. Uh, and he was such a good guy. When he heard I had opened a club in Baltimore, he literally flew into Baltimore to surprise the club there. So, uh, I, you know, nobody else would do that. Nobody else ever has done that. But that's the kind of guy he was. Now, is it is it myth? Or is it true when he came to the CFO in, I believe it was Philly, maybe in Baltimore, but as he was walking down to the stage, he was people were standing up? Yes. Yes, because they were all expecting a hoax. You know, we said, uh, they were all said, you know, because we're always pulling tricks on the audience, and, they, you know, it's a Philly crowd. They're not going to think it. And as he was walking through the audience to come to the stage people start standing up and cheering because they could not believe it and if you ask the people in philly there were tens of thousands of people there that night that <laughs> showed up and uh but 
intensity of the room. So uh, he uh, he only performed for 416 people that night. So he never he never performed for tens of thousands like they would have you believe. Well, that was always that was always the Philadelphia, Philadelphia people always exaggerated. There is you know about that certain newscaster and the animal, and everyone knew someone who worked in the hospital, or everyone, oh yeah, my sister-in-law is a nurse. You know how Philadelphia people are. So now, now, who were some of your personal favorite acts that I mean that could have been been big or not? I mean, I, I always think you were a Fred Novak fan, but who were some of the acts that you really liked, and who were some of the acts that you thought would make it, and who were some of the acts that you didn't think would make it and did? Hmm. Oh well, that's that's pretty easy. Uh, one guy, Paul F. Tompkins, he never got past the audition night stuff. And uh, now he's doing stuff with Bob Odenkirk and, you know, Mr. Show. And uh, he's got, God knows, something else going on. Uh, very, very much a, a surprise. Uh, another guy who I will tell you is talented, but he, he never seemed to be cut out for stand-up was Adam McKay. And uh, Adam's been doing okay. You know, oh, yeah. He did not thank me in his Oscar speech. And uh, I'm still pissed off about that. But uh, he uh, he could have thanked me. You know, he, he worked the door and he did audition night. And uh, all of a sudden, oh, 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 here comes Will Ferrell. Let me do some movies with him. Let's make a few billion dollars. And now I'm going to do the big short and it's going to win an Oscar. And now I can do whatever I want. Yeah, okay, there you go. So, yeah, I, you know, I... I wasn't close with Adam when he worked for me, but, you know, he was, he's obviously done well for himself. Well, that was the gig, because I worked there, too, and Neil Bobel and Keith Robinson and uh, Alex, I remember the comic Alex and Steve Thomas, and a bunch of us worked there, and it was, uh, it was like getting that red, and it sounds weird, but getting that red satin jacket was just a cool thing. Who designed those jackets? Because they're, they're legendary in the Philadelphia comedy scene. Oh, I designed them myself. Do you have any more? Yes, I do. See that? You, quite, you should quite a few. I have Baltimore and Philly. And see, that was a thing. People just, you know, if you worked on the if you worked on the staff, you'd get to see comedy. You'd be the doorman or you'd seat people. And it was always good because you would always get a good spot on open mic. So, it's, and the one thing about the, the Comedy Factory Outlet back then was they did the Picket Alley hat, the other club, the Comedy Works, would do it where they would sit there and they would rank you on how they thought you were. But that was the one thing, that the CFO would get a lot of drop-ins. But I, I, I look at the comedy now, and you know the CFO, you guys didn't do a bringer thing, but open mics always had a good crowd. you think that was because you could promote it through the radio? Is that one of the reasons why? Yes, it was. It was because I was hosting it, and uh, you know, quite a few nights I could tell how good a week I had on the radio by the attendance at the club on the Thursday night. If I had a real strong week then I knew we would be sold out that Thursday night. If not, well, there you go. Uh, there's ups and downs, but welcome to show business. Now, so I, I'm not welcoming you personally to show business. Show business is ignoring you. But you did hire me, so you know I wore a satin jacket, so I'm 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 cool like that. Uh, so when did you notice that the comedy boom was starting to dissipate? Because 
I remember at one time there were so many clubs in Philadelphia in the area between you and the works and I guess going bananas closed early and the comedy cabarets opened all around. When did you sit there and go, this is getting oversaturated? Oh, you know, it wasn't really the oversaturation part. Uh, it was when the, uh, they cha- they closed the Navy Yard and, uh, and that's when unemployment went up to 14% in Philly. And that was a big problem. Because you're not going to go out and pay a premium price for live entertainment when you can just stay home and drink. And uh, and that was the, the big turning point. Uh, when I got out of the Philly club, I told the guy who took it over, look, you know, it's 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 bad. It's bad. The, uh, the, the club is going to, you're going to struggle. Oh, no, no, no. I remember selling out three shows on a Saturday night. That, you know, you just got to... You just got to work at it. You can bring it back. Yeah, he was gone in a couple months. Was it hard for you to let go of the club? Because it was, I mean, you, you had such a, a backbone in the history of Philadelphia comedy. I mean, you know, what was, I mean, that must have been something that, you know, must have been a little frustrating. Nope. Not at all. I, you know, it's, and the, you're the first human being I've ever mentioned this to. So this is the big spoiler alert, America, uh, for for all eight people listening to Cooper Talk podcast, uh, I hated running it. I did not enjoy it at all. It was not what I wanted to do. I would just sit in the office and say, what am I doing with my life? I'm a prisoner here. I'm chained. I can't, I can't ever leave. I can't ever do what I want to do, which is right. And now I can't. Uh, I am. I have been liberated, and it was such a relief that I didn't have to do that anymore. So, so you packed up your bags. Now, what were you? Well, you grew up in Tacony, right? Yes. Okay. And then, where were you living? Were you living in Center City when you were before you left Philadelphia? Nope. Um, you know, I was living in uh, Holmesburg for the longest period of time uh, in a one-bedroom apartment on Frankfurt Avenue overlooking the Pennypack Creek. Uh, the apartment was uh, costing me uh, 135 bucks a month, which was uh, which was okay. You know, it was it was a ground floor apartment. It was actually a basement. But, uh, you know, it was a good place and uh, a good location. And I had a view of the park and the Pennypack Creek. And, the, you know, and I actually had deer coming up to the window every now and then. So it was... Uh, a nice little oasis in the middle of a hellhole. Now, now, when did you decide to move out to L.A.? I mean, and was it a, a process that you thought for a while? Or did it, once you got rid of the club, was it a quick move? Or how did you go about it? Actually, uh, a guy who is still a very good friend of mine, and uh, we, we communicate by email almost every single day and talk uh, quite often, Emo Phillips came to me, and he said, Clay, uh, I did this movie for National Lampoon, and I put out all my money to produce it for them, and then before they could pay me, they declared bankruptcy, which National Lampoon was doing a lot of. And he said, you know, I think this movie could be a big hit if it was, like, remade with a bigger budget. And uh, Emo trusted me because I was the only comedy club 
owner probably in history who never tried to rip him off. He would come in and do a door deal, and, uh, you know, the people uh, at the comedy clubs would say, well, you know, we only had X amount of people paid, the rest were comps, and and rip them off that way. And uh, you, of all people, know that uh, the door people at the Comedy Factory Alley were not the best in terms of basic math. And one time, Emo came in to do a door deal, and uh, we undercounted by eight seats. And so I said, Emo, it's not your fault. We undercounted by eight seats, but I'm going to pay you for the sellout anyway because it wasn't your fault. We miscounted. And it turns out we wound up selling those eight seats anyway through walk-ins, but that's when he realized that I was the guy to be trusted because I wasn't going to rip them off. I wasn't going to say, well, you were eight seats short and that's it. Uh, so the, uh, the 200 bucks it cost me, uh, which didn't wound up costing me anything, uh, Garner's movie, I want you to look at it. Said, I think it's very funny. I think it's very original. And I looked at it and I said, this is unbelievably good, as you can imagine from Emo. Uh, and I moved out here to California to sell it to the studios. A uh, long involved process, uh, but it eventually got sold to Universal and they wound up making it with, uh, remaking it with Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro and it was Meet the Parents. Now, how did you go about selling it to the studios? Because, you know, you're basically, you ran a comedy club, you're an ad guy, you were a, uh, you were, you know, a radio guy. I mean, it doesn't really all come down to sales. How did you sit there and pitch these studios this? You know, I fortunately, it wasn't really more of a pitch since it was a, a finished product. And, of course, there was the uh, pedigree of National Lampoon uh, was going to release this. And so they're all willing to sit and watch it. I had a uh, one night I had to go to a New Line Cinema. And uh, the, uh, the guy who directed the movie, he said, I don't want anybody watching a videotape of this. They got to watch it with a crowd and it's got to be projected. And so they didn't have uh, projection facilities in New Line for a movie th company. So I had to rent a 16 millimeter projector and a screen and set it up in the, uh, in the conference room and uh, we had a screening at, uh, you know, I got there at 6, and we uh, screened it for everybody at 7, and uh, by 9 o'clock it was over, and then they started asking me questions and questions and questions, and what about this, what about that, it was a, a very intense grilling, and I hadn't eaten, and, uh, and I said, look guys, it's 11 o'clock, I'm tired, what do you say, look, either you write me a check, or let's just call it a night. Well, they didn't write me a check. And then at 8.30 the next morning, my phone rang, and a guy who wasn't even there was on the phone, the vice president of something or other, and he said, yeah, we decided to pass. I'm thinking, you guys knew you were going to pass the night before. Why would you keep me for hours on end starving? asking me questions well you know welcome to show business that's all they had to do was to just say well we were in a big pitch meeting all night long uh so that's how they justify their 
uh, existence. So who eventually bought the movie? Universal. And so you Universal. were you were involved in that. Now, were you surprised it hit so big, or did you pretty much know? Uh, you know, the version that Emo did, and uh, fortunately Roger Ebert and Leonard Maltin will tell you, was far superior to the De Niro version. Uh, it was much darker because at the end, Greg accidentally kills off Pam's entire family, and uh, which negates the uh, the possibility of the right. sequel. <laughs> but uh, but it, it was it was much better, and it was smaller uh, in the original version. Well, you probably remember in the the Nero Stiller version, uh, Greg screws up the septic tank and uh, crap splatters everywhere and that sort of stuff. In the original version, Greg screws up the toilet and it stops up and it flows down the steps. And that's something that is more relatable, actually, than, you know, you go to somebody's house and you overflow the toilet. Yeah, that's been almost a few people. I don't even know anybody who has a septic tank. Right. So, uh by, by trying to make it uh, larger, they didn't necessarily make it better. They just made it larger. So, you know, if they had kept the original concept of screwing up the toilet and having the crap flow down the steps, people would have related more. Now, earlier you said, you know, when you were in the office at CFO, you just wanted to write. Now, I know if I've seen your posts on Facebook where you've been in some screenwriting competitions and won some of them. When did you start writing seriously? When you got out here, or were you starting projects in Philadelphia? And where have you gone with them? And is it only screenplays, or you're also looking into TV? Oh well, <laughs> well, thank you for asking six questions in one sentence. Uh, <laughs> I I had been doing some writing in Philly. I actually wrote a play, which I uh, came across, which was hockey oriented. Uh, hockey and stage plays don't tend to mix much. Uh, I doubt that we'll be seeing that in the near future. It's so tough to keep the ice at a good temperature. Uh, so uh, I, I, I do have that. But uh, when I first got out here, uh, there was a major studio, which was not Universal, uh, who said, who, by the way, uh, by their own uh, admission, screened the emo's version of meet the parents 28 times so they had a lot of uh, interest in it and uh, the guy who uh, originally wrote the uh, meet the parents uh, he was in on the meetings and everything else and the and this particular studio said well we you know we want to make it darker and i'm thinking well geez everybody's dead (laughs) well you gotta kill them off better and i said wow that's a great job. I want that job. And the, and the guy who originally wrote it said, well, I don't think I can. I said, no, here's what you do, and here's what you do, and here's what you do. And then I started saying, wow, I got I got this nailed. Oh, man, I'm killing off people left and right, and it's fun. And so uh, that was my first uh, foray into screenwriting uh, when Universal got a look at uh what had been done, they immediately uh, discarded every single word. So there wasn't a single word that I had written that made it into 
the final production that you saw on screen. So now what are you working on these days? Well, uh, you know, I've gotten, uh, I've won quite a few uh, screenwriting contests. What I do now is uh, I write under a pen name because of my age. People don't want to deal with me. But uh, the, my new pen name, which I'm not telling you what it is, uh, is, is got a, a lot of heat around town. So uh, uh, I actually hire an actor to go be me at these meetings uh, who's younger. And so uh, that works out well, too. Uh, I'm actually shooting a, uh, another TV pilot next month. And uh, this one looks like it's going to uh, go someplace. Uh so we'll, we have our fingers crossed. Are you are you sticking strictly to comedy, or have you branched off of the comedy at all? No, the strictly comedy. I don't know how to do anything else. Everything else I I touch turns to comedy, and so uh, no matter how uh, sad and dark it is, it always winds up being funny in my hands. So I realized that I, I have I have a certain area that. I, a certain niche in which I excel, and I better not vary from that. Now, do you ever get on stage anymore? Uh, very, very rarely. You know, usually when somebody, well, somebody has to ask me, I'm not going to go ask them. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I do, uh, and it's almost always for a charity thing. And uh, so, you know, I, I'll get up on stage, and I, I think I may... Uh, I have talked myself into a gig in Hawaii in February. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 the answer is yes, I do. And uh, no, I don't look for it. It's a, it's a lot of work remembering all that material because I can't remember it anymore. And I have to go dig through my notes and rehearse and do all that other stuff and uh, get, try and get the timing back. It's not easy. Isn't it weird? Like, you know, you think when you, when you were running CFO – you know, you, you were on stage all the time, so it became so natural. And I know people say it's like riding a bike, it comes back to you. But you're right, you do have to sit there when you go back on stage, and you, you, want, you want to look through the old notes, and then you sit there and go, oh, God, this isn't really relevant anymore. And then, uh, and then I mean, it's just, it must be, it must be weird, because, you know, for you, for so many years, that was like so many nights of your life. Yeah, yeah, you know, at, uh, at one point, Philly is not known as anything but a weekend town, but we were selling out two shows on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday nights, and three on Saturdays. Uh, nobody, nobody in, in probably I can't think of anywhere in the country will will do two shows on a Tuesday night, let alone sell them out. Now, are you are you still uh, getting on the ice? Because I know you used to play a lot of hockey. No. Nope, uh, I've retired that completely. My knees are uh, are fairly well shot, and so uh, and plus it's hard to get ice time out here. Last time I played hockey, literally, was with Alan Thick. Wow! So, uh, yeah, crazy. I didn't kill him. Yeah, I see that. So uh, now, do you do you go back to Philadelphia anymore, or are you just pretty much an LA guy now? You know, very very rarely. Since my parents passed, through you know my my sister lives around there. And my brother lives on the uh, in Connecticut, and I have uh, nieces and nephews in the Philly area. But no, not really. You know, it's uh, it's it's kind of like a sad area for me to go because the skies are always gray, and I said, "Wow, 
you know, this, I can't believe it. You don't see the sun much here. Right. Well, you know what? Now, do you, are you, do you tweet at all? I know you, you post a lot on Facebook. Are you a Twitter guy? No, I, I think Twitter's going to go away very soon. You know, they can't turn a profit and they can't find anybody to, uh, to buy them. So there is, uh, at some point, and it'll probably be uh, within the next, you know, six to eight months, they're just going to fold because if you don't make money, you can't pay the bills. So I, I, I could see that Twitter was going to be a failure because, uh, you know, Trump likes it, but that doesn't mean it's any good. Uh, I, I don't see it's going to work. Well, okay. Well, so how can people get in touch with you? Just on Facebook? Pretty much not. Okay. You know, I don't need to talk to people. I don't like people. I'm not a fan of people. Uh, they don't need to get in touch with me at all. Uh, if they want, they can get in touch with me through you. Okay. Let you filter them because uh, I'll let you be my uh, my agent for that sort of a thing. All right. Well, now, let me ask you a question, Stephen. We have about a couple minutes left. Yeah. Maybe less. What do you do for a living? I do freelance writing. I get advertisers for this. I do a bunch of different stuff. I got all different hats going on, Clay. I got I got a bunch of stuff going on. So you know how it is. It's it's the it's the LA. It's got to do a bunch of stuff. You know, you're you're the single reason I don't use Uber because I figure you would show up. <laughs> so I'm not. Uh, I don't I don't do that. So uh, yeah, well, good luck with you and your blowhole advertiser. Uh, oh, blowfish. I'm right. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on, Clay. It was uh, you know, you don't you don't know this, but you really. Uh, helped out a lot of comics in Philadelphia. I mean, you're one of the guys who got a lot of us our first on stage. So, and we all remember that, even though you always, you know, gave a shit when you're on stage. So, anyway, people, don't check out Clay here. <laughs> don't get in touch with him because he doesn't want you to talk to him. And when Twitter goes down in six to eight months, remember you heard it here first, people. Clay Heary said it here first. So, people. Check uh, me out on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk for the next six to eight months. It's at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have a bunch of episodes up there. You can email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Uh, Instagram, where's the friends? Cooper Talk one Instagram, I put food pictures up because that leads to the other thing is uh, my website, stopthesalt.com. You know, a few years ago when I had that bad health scare, I had to reevaluate my all my eating habits. So I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. They're easy to make, no pictures to intimidate you. They're just good. So you can go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com and get it, or you can go to StopTheSalt.com and then I make more money. So keep listening, people. Don't forget, go to 4Hangovers, F-O-R-Hangovers.com. That's for the blowfish. Uh, you can order that. Put in 20% uh, twenty percent off if you put in Cooper at a promo code. So go to 4Hangovers.com. Follow them at blowfishhangovers.com. Once again, Clay, I want to thank you for coming on. People, you have a great holiday. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.